yes, it is important to collect um, all of these uh, documents because it just, you know, it one, it, it shows your credibility um, or lack of, right? And then two, just you just don't want to look like you're hiding information. Hi, I'm Beth Anderson-Filson, and my law firm is Anderson Law PC, and we do family law, estate planning, probate, and custody issues, modification of divorce and settlement agreements, separation agreements. Um, we also do protection orders, prenups, postnups, all family things. And a lot of what we do involves families that broke up, but I've really realized over the years that families just change form. They're still families. They just change form over time. And when you break up, you're not just breaking up, you're breaking upward. So um, I'm really honored right now to have two of my favorite people, which are two of our contractors at Anderson Law. We have Brandy Pummel and we have Crystal Andrade. And Brandy is a lawyer and she's expert in family law. Crystal is also expert in family law. She's also a mediator. Brandy is also an appellate attorney. They just have lots of skills they bring to the table. And I'm happy to have both of them here. So my contact information is my cell phone is 303-808-4794. I just give it out all the time. It seems to work out for me. You can call or text me for a free consultation. And um, my expertise is I was a commercial litigator. Then I worked for legal services, did impact litigation like class actions. I was a stay-at-home mom for a while. I got divorced. Then I got into criminal defense. I've done personal injury, pretty much every type of law, and now I'm a family law attorney. And so, Crystal, tell us a little bit about yourself and how to get in touch with you. Sure. Um, so I have been a paralegal almost a decade now, um, and I've always only worked in family law, and so that, that's what I've been doing for the past almost 10 years. I did also do a little bit of mediation work, um, so I do have a bit of experience in that, but it's also in family law. And I have uh, managed cases in Spanish. I am bilingual, so I have helped uh, attorneys in the past um, manage their cases um, with clients that are Spanish-speaking only so and that was definitely fun and um, I, I definitely enjoy doing that so um, I have found in my experience that uh, the Hispanic community is definitely an underserved community and so I feel like my heart really kind of really just you know they have my heart in that in that section so yeah and if you need to reach out to me for any reason uh, you can contact me at my phone number 303-945-9672 or by email, which is crystal, and that's C-R-Y-S-T-A-L, at mezzalegalgroup.org. Thank you so much. And Brandy, how about yourself? So my name is Brandy Pamel. I've been practicing since 1999. Um, I came out of school um, working in personal injury, um, actually specializing in cases where people have been abused by people they trust. After that, I clerked for Justice Me. Martinez on the Colorado Supreme Court. That was really um, interesting in the sense of seeing behind the scenes and how important the case law is and the development of that. Um, since that, I have had a lot of experience in appeals, personal injury, most recently in family law, and that is where I understood how important it is to understand and do complete um, financials and um, think about the long-term 
uh, impact of the decisions that you make in that process. Um, I'm not practicing actively right now, other than working for Anderson Law PC as a contractor. So if you want to get a hold of me, um, the best way to contact me is through Beth Anderson and Anderson Law PC. Yeah, and thank you both so much for coming here. And also, I just really appreciate both of your work and you've helped the firm in a lot of people. So good to have both of you here. And we're talking about your financials. We're also talking about discovery, like all these words that might sound unusual or like legal, legal, legal to someone who's not an attorney. But this is what you go through as part of the divorce process. No matter who you are, you go through this process. It's required. And Also, I want you both to know that we don't talk about specific clients or cases of ours because I want every client to feel like they're anonymous. If a client's listening, they may think, oh, that's about me. It isn't. It's a composite and other clients just had the same experience. So the same things come up a lot. We do talk about recurring issues, but we never single out a client. I don't want anyone to think their case is being discussed on the podcast. But we have a lot of experience, especially between the three of us. So we'll be sharing some of that. And so let's just get right into it with the financials. And so Crystal, do you want to tell us a little bit about that big first financial document that people have to fill out? It's called the Sworn Financial Statement. Sure. Um, so within 42 days of the uh, one of the parties being served, um, which would be the respondent, um, the court requires both parties to uh, fill out, like Beth said, a, what's called a sworn financial statement, also a financial affidavit. And basically, it's just a document uh, that each party uh, completes to inform the court of their you know, monthly financial expenses, uh, such as groceries, utilities, uh, things of that nature. And so, I mean, they just goes into a lot of detail. Uh, they wanna know anything from, you know, any type of outstanding debt that either party currently has um, to assets such as investment accounts, property, uh, vehicles, and, you know, if you might have a 5294 for your child, they want to know that as well. Um, so it's just an in-depth disclosure of your, your finances. And Brandy, did you want to weigh in anything else about the sworn financial statement? Um, I find the sworn financial statement is very complete and very detailed. I often tell my friends that if they need a budget to look at the form for the sworn financial statements, because it is so detailed, it includes four major categories, all of your income, all of your expenses, all of your assets, and all of your debts. And it's really important to fill this out as completely as you can Um, and to update it on a regular basis because the court uses this to not only decide your case but to be aware of what the parties do know you know what your income is what you pay in taxes what your every expenses are currently what you anticipate them to be Um, and then assets and they include the assets you own together the assets you may have inherited, any debts that you have together, any debts that you anticipate or you're accruing while you're going through. The biggest problem that I, the biggest challenge I faced when I had clients is they didn't understand just how important being complete and accurate was in filling out these forms. And it does take a lot of time and it's frustrating when you're trying to go through a divorce, but it is very, very important to the process. 
thanks for that, both of you. And what I wanted to add is um, the JDF forms for that are JDF 1111, and then there's a supplemental schedule, JDF 1111S for supplemental, S for schedule. That's in the lower left footer of the document. You can find them. There's a link on our website, BethlynAndersonJD.com. It's in the show notes, Anderson with an E. And um, don't worry about your first draft. Just throw it together. It's like working out at the gym. Do a half hour a day. You'll get it done. We're here to help you complete it. We use Math for Law sometimes to help people complete them. And you can make a little note. You can say, oh, I'm paying the mortgage now, but I hope to buy my own house later. Make a note. Add a page. Just explain what's going on. And remember, you can change it later. So you may not want to back yourself into a corner saying the house is worth this much right now. You may say TBD, to be determined, or estimated amount, pending an appraisal of the home. And you will do more than one, most likely, unless you've agreed on everything up front. And we'll talk about you can stipulate to values or get them appraised or evaluated by experts. And we'll talk about that a little bit. But don't worry about it too, too much. I do think it's a nice time to have an attorney help you prepare that document and do it accurately. So that's our sworn financial statement. We all got to do it. It's a little bit of a glitchy form, but we'll help you get there. The next form, it's not necessarily just a form, but all your financials. The court does not want to keep copies of all your financials, but you do have to turn them over to the other parties. So Brandy, tell us a little bit about our um, financial disclosures. So the financial disclosures are designed to provide the supporting documents for the information that you provide in the sworn financial. So it's often things like your W-2s, three years of tax returns, copies of your bank statements, can be copies of your credit cards. It can be if you have estimates of your house or you know, from previous times, um, sometimes when you refinance, sometimes when you purchase it the first time. Again, all of these documents um, are really provided to the opposing party or their counsel, not necessarily filed with the court at that time. But again, these documents are all used to confirm the information that you have on your sworn financial statement. You can also make a note like, I've requested this, it will come in, or this is my estimate of the value of my retirement accounts right now, but I haven't gotten a statement for a while. Those kind of details um, do your best, um, but you do wanna go back and be as complete as you can. Um, Again, for credibility reasons, um, the more accurate, um, the more complete your documents are, the less likely the other party is to question what's in them. Thanks so much for that. And Crystal, what did you want to add, if anything, about our financials? Yeah, um, it's definitely important to get these in. Now, you know, don't feel overwhelmed or stressed or pressured if you can't get everything in all at once. Um, I know that's one thing that I've, I've found in my experience with uh, clients is, you know, they feel a little overwhelmed at times and just, you know, scared because they don't have access, immediate, you know, immediate access to certain information. And so they feel like they might get in trouble for it. But, um, you know, I just want to provide some peace of mind that that's not the case. You know, as you had mentioned earlier, Beth, is 
they can always supplement at a later point um, in their case or just, you know, we can make a note or just, you know, put the opposing side on notice that, hey, you know, the client's working on getting this information. They don't have access at the time, um, but they are working on getting it. And as soon as we, you know, receive a copy, we'll get it over to you. So um, as long as we're just keeping them informed, we're communicating, um, you know, it, it, it will all be okay. Um, but yes, it is important to collect um, all of these uh, documents that Brandy mentioned because it just, you know, it one, it, it shows your credibility um, or lack of, right? And then two, just you just don't want to look like you're hiding information, right? That's, that's very key, very important as well. But yeah, the form that you would want to uh, review or look at for knowing what specific documentation to disclose or to provide is the 35.1 mandatory disclosures form, also known as JDF 1125. Um, and you can find access of that on the court's uh, website as well under the forms section. Yep, and we have a link and all kinds of information about it on our website. In addition to this podcast, we have just our own details and our own forms where you can track how you're assembling them and providing them and getting them from the other party. What I wanted to add, and thanks for that, by the way, is um, one of our clients called it the monthlies because you have to supplement them every month. It's not one and done. So say your credit card statement, you put it together, you disclose the balance, we'll get to discovery, it may be more detailed with discovery, and then you have to next month turn over the new one and this goes on until you're done divorcing or whatever the court process is so be prepared to just update them once a month oh now the balance on our mortgage is this new number so that's one thing to keep in mind i want every one of our clients to have a laptop or a tablet or access to a computer if they possibly can if not go to the library or use your phone because you want to be expert in this you want to learn it get your head in the game be on top of it. That's one thing. No client of ours is to be just sitting back and being ignorant about their money. You really can't afford to not know it yourself. And it gives you so much credibility when you go into mediation and you know the numbers. Everyone is looking to you. And I'll do a little note on this. Like no client of mine has ever not been told to disclose everything. No client has ever not been told that you may have to split everything. And there is some separate property, and I always talk to clients, separate property is what you inherited, what you had before the marriage that you can trace. You have to trace it and show you had it before the marriage. Gifts, or maybe you had an agreement that it's separate. But everything else that you accrued during the marriage gets split. And I've never not told clients they have to share their stuff. I've never not told clients that they have to provide this information. I've never not told clients that they need to get values for every single thing from the house to the retirement, to the other person's retirement and pensions. And um, we go through all those elements, a business evaluation. I'm always pushing for all of this professional information. You're not going to have it right up front, but you have to be accountable about all that information. I think people hear and remember what they want to hear, and I do get that sometimes. Oh, I didn't know I had to turn it over. I didn't know that 
I had to get a value for it or that I had to share it. Yeah, these judges have seen us in and out of their courtrooms many, many times. They know darn well that our firm did not tell you that. And so just get it together. It's okay. We're here to protect you. The other thing I wanted to say is it's more like poker where you have to just turn your cards up. You don't get to just hide it and wait for them to ask. And I've tried both ways, just waiting for the other side to do it first and being strategic and just kind of pushing for our clients to get it done right away. Hands down, get it done right away. It's so much more effective. You're going to do better in your divorce. There's something called an initial status conference. It's now by phone. And there's nothing better than you call in and they say, oh, I see the petitioner has turned in their sworn financial statement and all of their disclosures now respondent. When can we expect to see yours? You're already in the driver's seat and your attorneys are already crafting great arguments for you based on the data. So I'm really into doing it sooner than later. And if it's too hard, we are more than happy to um, help you put them together. That's what we do. We love doing it. We'll help you get there. So, And we'll take your documents however you get them to us. I've had boxes, shopping bags, email, Dropbox. I don't care how you get them to us. Flash drive, whatever. Just get them to us and we'll help you out. So that's your disclosures. It's not fun, but it is kind of fun once you get it done and then you can put the other person on the hot seat. So that's disclosures. Now, what's the difference, Crystal, between discovery and disclosures? Well, I mean, there's a huge difference because with uh, the disclosures, I mean, you're basically just required to do, I think, as far back as three on the tax returns and then with the bank statements, I mean, that's kind of a little, I feel like everybody kind of has their own little rule on that, but rule of thumb with it, I think it's three months and we've had debated about this over and over. But with the discovery, so that goes as far back as I believe five years, if it I'm just, not mistaken, yeah, just it, depending. Yeah, there's pattern discovery. So discovery is interrogatories. That's a fancy word for questions. Right. And then requests for documents. That's ask them for their documents, mm -hmm. you serve it on the other party, there's pattern requests for production of documents, pattern interrogatories in divorce, and they're already written for you. Right. And so you just serve them on the other side, and so it's more like go fish. If you don't serve it, they don't have to turn it over. Mm -hmm. So it's it's broader. So I think that's what you're getting at. And that um, so tell us a little bit about how it's broader in terms of going back in time and things. Oh yeah, and Brandy um, wanted I'd to like say to something. I'd like to add that um, the purpose of the disclosures and the discovery can be a little bit different. So one role of the disclosures is just so everything's on the table like Beth said, but if there is something specific that you know that hasn't been produced and is not part of the regular discovery or disclosure process, say somebody has their own business or you, you have a suspicion about assets that were not disclosed, that gives you an opportunity to ask for specific information and to ask for a longer time frame that might show something that the initial disclosures won't show. Yeah, for sure. And I have, for some reason, I don't know why, but I suddenly had clients pushing back about discovery, whereas my entire time practicing family law, it was 
my client's favorite thing to do, put the other guy on the hot seat. Hey, I want to see this. I want to see that. And in addition to the pattern ones, there are some that you can just craft yourself. They have to be very simple. They can't be compound questions, but you get 10 interrogatories, questions, and 10 requests for documents that you get to put together yourself. And like Brandy said, expand on things. And lately, I don't know why clients don't want to do it sometimes. But once I explain to them how helpful it is to really get all the information on the table, they usually do. And I find my opposing counsel as a rule, once I tell them why we're serving it and that we'll be very flexible, they're okay with us serving it. So I kind of cut you off a little bit, Crystal, but what are some of the things you want clients to know when you help them do discovery? Yeah, no, no, it's okay. I actually wanted to add something, something that's come up a lot in, you know, in the past, um, in my past experience. But um, you know, you have a lot of people who start businesses, build them up, then they're worth a lot, you know, they get to a point where they're worth a lot, and then they turn around and sell them. Now, if that happened three to four years ago, where they sold their business and got a certain amount of profit, that's not going to come up in the disclosures process, perhaps, but it can in the um, in the um, discovery process. So, that, you know, that's just one example of why it's really important, and we can't stress it enough. Um, but would you mind re, um, asking me your question again, Beth? Oh, I was just asking if you had anything to add about why discovery interrogatories and requests for production of documents. Um, just some of the things you've come across in doing it that's a little different than the disclosures or how the clients react to serving it and responding to it. Yeah, sure. So I know nobody's ever happy <laughs> when they're served discovery, right? Just because it is. It is a lengthy process. It's a lot. It's a lot of information to gather and to organize and to prepare. And so nobody really likes it when they have to do it, but then they're happy when they do do it, right? And and they, you know, they don't miss an opportunity to put someone on the spot about something, right? That's when everybody loves discovery. <laughs> but oh my gosh. It can be yeah. fun, right? It can be, yeah. can be a love and hate relationship yeah. with discovery, I feel like. It's fun to serve it. It's not fun to get served with it. Yeah. Um, and there's even questions in the pattern about we're not talking too much about it right now, but um, parenting plan. I've had some where it's just such a big thing where you ask a very pointed question and that resolves the case and you don't have to go to trial because the answer to the discovery, it turns out you weren't on the same page. One person thought the trust was worth more than the other person did, or one person thought that the inheritance had not been distributed and it had, or what have you. That happens all the time. And this is a good time for me to mention there's a five-year look back for fraud so if someone thinks they can be cute and not turn stuff over we always and I repeat always protect our clients to reopen for the five-year look back so I'm a lot more scared about my client not turning stuff over and we're going to get to that than the other side sometimes not turning it over because you're going to get damages you can reopen the whole divorce if the other side doesn't turn over now don't get me wrong we're going to pressure the other side to turn stuff over but if they want to try to hide things not get a business evaluation not um turnover information about maybe they have a pension or what have you i've reopened divorces for that other attorneys have too and um, you're going to pay the price there's a case called hunt and it talks about how the husband in that case didn't get a business evaluation and sure enough the wife came back to court reopened the whole divorce because he didn't get the business evaluation. So it's really risky not to turn stuff over and 
serving discovery is a way to show that you did everything you can to get it. Now, Brandy, what do we do if they don't turn something over? What are some remedies we have? So the first step we would do is actually to contact the other party or their council and request it again and make sure that everybody knows what has been requested and why it's important. But the legal, the next legal remedy would be to file um, a motion to compel. And that is basically an opportunity to put the court on notice of what you've requested, what has been provided, but what's still missing, and why that is important. And those motions can be very helpful in the forecasting or showing the judge what the issues are that the parties are not being upfront about before trial, and that can put pressure on the opposing party to 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 actually be honest about it. And if they look bad, um, that's one thing, but the court can actually f- order them to turn it over. Yeah, and um, Crystal, why do you think it's important to turn things over and not hide them in divorce? So for example, I might have a credit card statement and maybe I don't want the other party to see how I'm spending my money or I don't want them to see my tax return so I might think I don't want to tell anyone about it. Why why is that not a good idea? It sounds like a great idea. Just hide it and oh well, no harm, no fall. We talked about it exposes you to the risk they could reopen the divorce but what are some other problems with not turning stuff over? Yeah, well, I mean, there comes a point where we, you know, we draft what's called a marital asset uh, and debt spreadsheet, right, which ultimately helps us kind of have an idea of how we're going to divide the assets. And so, I mean, if we're missing anything from there, right, there can be an unequal division of assets and debt, right? We look for what's called an equalization payment. And so it's it's possible that that payments just gets thrown off by a few figures if you're not a 100%, you know, transparent with everything that that exists. So that's definitely um, important. Yeah, for sure. It can hurt you by not having the information on the table. And also, there are sanctions if you don't turn things over at hearing. I like to do the 16, it's Colorado Rules of Civil Procedure 16.2J, and it says if someone doesn't turn it over, then at trial they don't get to introduce it. And I use it all the time. I'm here to tell you if you're going to go to hearing against one of our clients, you may hear that citation for anything you didn't turn over. So all of a sudden you're testifying about whatever it might be, and um, the judge doesn't want you to play games like that and sandbag the other side. I also find that we all know the kind of things that come up in divorce. So it shines a light on it when suddenly you're saying, oh, I don't have any documentation on my pension. I have no idea what it's worth. I don't know what my salary is. I don't even know how I get paid. They're not going to listen to that. And now everyone's talking about the one thing you're trying to hide. So it really backfires, I find, and draws more attention on it. So there are a lot of reasons. And just turn it over at least to your attorney Mm -hmm. and they can kind of figure out what to do. And yeah, Brandy, did you have anything to add to that? I was just saying, think about something you do day in and day out so you know if something's missing. Think about the judges and the attorneys. They look at 
hundreds of sworn financial statements, Rule 16.2 disclosures, they can tell when something's missing and you lose credibility not only with the judge and the opposing counsel, but you lose credibility with your attorney. The other thing is, is attorneys can strategize with things when they know about them, but it's really hard for them to strategize if you wait till the last minute or they don't know about something until trial. So um, it gives them a lot, your your attorney a lot more power if they have complete information. They can find a way if they don't have to disclose it, but it's it's much it's much easier to hide something if you um, not hide it, but to not shine a light on it when um, it's just produced in your big for initial stack than if you wait till a week before trial. Then everybody's yeah. gonna know it and they're gonna look at it more closely. Yeah, I call it a document dump. When people just think they can dump all the documents like right before trial, that doesn't work, or even right before during mediation. It really doesn't work. It really impairs the ability to get the job done. And that's what I meant by being strategic is we can figure out how to use it. it to me, it's like, what's that show, The Greatest British Bake Off? or I don't know how to say the title, but we watched this show about the Great British Bake Off. If you don't have the ingredients, you're not going to start baking. Mm -hmm. And those are our ingredients. And so we're coming up with a strategy. Oh, we can trade this for that. We don't, you know, we can value this at that value. If you don't have the documentation, you're handcuffed. You don't even get to start cooking up the recipe, not to hide things, but just to be strategic and use them to your client's advantage. That's what we try to do. Yeah, so is there anything else you wanted to weigh in on that, Brandy? The other thing is, is when you start um, hiding things like that, it can actually run up your fees a lot. Oh, that's a good point, for um, sure. It can mean that, you know, you have to file a motion to compel, then you have to respond to a motion to compel. There's a lot of conversations between counsel, and honestly, it can end up costing you more than whatever that asset or that income and we is get, worth. And we ask for and often get attorney's fees when someone doesn't turn something over. And even they might turn it over. This is very common. We'll say, oh, we'll confer. We'll call and we're required to do that. Hey, attorney, your client didn't turn this over. The tax returns. Okay, I'll get them to turn it over. They don't. So then we write up and file a motion to compel. Oh, here they come. The minute we file the motion, the motion worked. Let's be real here. They wouldn't have turned it over if we didn't make the motion. And then later you can point out to the judge, well, we had to make a motion to compel. We want our attorney's fees. They may say yes. They may say no. But yeah, 100% on that. So um, so help us help you. Yeah, I love that. That's a great way to end on help us help you. Um, and there are some other things like depositions, depositions on written questions depositions are kind of like where you ask someone questions almost like a hearing but you're in a an office you're not usually in a courtroom and and there are more detailed things there are requests for admission all sorts of stuff but the bottom line is to get to the answer get the information on the table you'd be surprised how you can quickly reach agreements once the information's on the table it's not as contentious as you think it's usually just math it's very straightforward <laughs> so um yeah that's um I think great information, how we can walk you through that. We're delighted to help you do it. We love doing it. We do it all the time. Um, Crystal has some sort of magic power. I don't have to chase people for their documents. And Brandy's always there if legal issues come up with a great citation to help us motor through. So now, before we go to our question of the day for next week, I'm going to try to say this. I'm sure I'll botch it. But in honor of Crystal being bilingual, I was going to ask her joke of the day. 
in Spanish, ¿Por qué los tiburones no atacan a los abogados? Do you want me to translate that for you in English? Just answer or, or it in just... Spanish and then we'll translate it. ¿Por qué a los tiburones, mm -hmm. es correcto, mm -hmm. no atacan a los abogados? Either of you can answer in Spanish. <laughs> ¿Por qué los abogados son los tiburones? <laughs> <laughs> sí, sí. Um, cortesia profesional. Oh. <laughs> Why don't sharks attack lawyers professional courtesy or according to Crystal, we are sharks. <laughs> I like your answer better. <laughs> That's very good. And then there's another joke that um, sometimes Crystal, there's just like little idioms or sayings in Spanish and one we have and I always botch it is no quiero pagar Sancho. Is that correct? Or is that how I say? I don't want to pay. Is it Sancho or... Like the other man? Yeah, the yeah, oh, that's a, <laughs> yeah, that's a saying in divorce that I've heard from some of my Spanish-speaking clients. Oh. No quiero pagar Sancho. Or, oh, Sancha. No le quiero pagar a Sancho. No lo quiero. Like, so I don't want to pay. Yeah, yeah, I don't want to pay Sancho. Yeah. And Sancho's like the other man, or, yeah. the, Sancha, or Sancha, the other woman. And yeah. so it's like, I don't want to pay child support. I don't want to pay the other dude who's raising my kids when I get pushed out of the pictures. So yeah. That's one of the favorite ones I have. And I can't remember the other one, but it's like, beware of the quiet ones. Oh, yeah, be careful with the quiet yeah, ones. Yeah, how do you say that? I always forget. Cuido, um, cuidado con los calladitos. Yeah. So sometimes we're like they're too quiet they're too good no one can be that good what's going on here <laughs> be careful and so that's when she told me be careful be careful of the quiet ones sometimes they have something up their sleeve watch out and that reminds me of something opposing counsel the ones that are just like all bark sometimes they're all bark and no bite they're feisty they're mean you can't get along with them that's not helping anyone and they're usually the pariah of law. Other attorneys see that they're acting like that. Whereas an attorney who shows professional courtesy actually is helping their client and you. And I'm more careful with them in terms of they usually know their stuff a lot better. Not that I'm not careful with the feisty ones too, but it's those ones that are so polite and so nice and so professional. They're also amazing attorneys. And if you do go to court, I find they usually do a better job for their clients. So don't mistake when I'm kind and courteous to the other side. I'm still fighting for our client. I'm just being polite about it and dignified because I'm not doing you any favors if I act like some sort of psychopath or baby who's like cursing and yelling like I'm getting the divorce. It doesn't help the client. The quiet ones who are very polite are usually the best in court. So that just reminded me of that. So um, yeah, Brandy wanted to weigh in on that too, I bet. Yeah, so I worked for Justice Martinez on the Colorado Supreme Court. And one of the things that he taught us was that we just have our credibility. The family law bar is very small. And so we run across the same attorneys over and over again. So we are much more likely to get them to treat us with courtesy and preserve your rights if we are always kind and professional with them than if we're always yelling and screaming. So we're actually much more effective attorneys for your case when we maintain that professionalism. 
I appreciate that and it echoes the podcast I did with Brian Beebe. He was a trial court clerk in New Jersey and we did a podcast on lifting the veil on behind the bench how they think because I was not a court clerk and so to have you weigh in on the same sentiment from being an appellate clerk means a lot. I know it's really hard to appeal in family law, but it does happen. I got some statistics that there are a lot of remands and reversals, even in family law. So it's not the majority, but it could be up to 30% sometimes if it's an error in the law. And to know that they also respect that credibility. There's something I want to weigh in on that. I didn't really think of it till now, but my reputation and my credibility is so important to me that I think I almost gave it too much weight. And by that, I mean, I don't control it. And when you're a family law attorney, people lie about you. Sometimes your opposing counsel doesn't call you up and just trashes you behind your back when you're not there to defend yourself. People may go ahead on their case when you're not there representing you anymore and lie about you in front of a judge. I had someone be censured by a judge for the way that they treated me in front of the judge, but they were trashing me right in front of the judge. You have to have thick skin to do what we do, and I do not control my reputation 100%, but I'm here to tell you whenever anyone treats me like that, it's an anomaly because people know we do our homework. We tell our clients what to do. We are thorough this is not our first rodeo, and sometimes cases might end midstream or go in a different direction. I can't control my reputation, but I'm here to tell you, in my opinion, there's a higher justice out there and it does come back. So when things go sideways, that reputation, I can't control it and it does scare me. But over the years, I've seen it kind of come back to me more good than bad. And I've even had at least two attorneys come to mind where they literally called me and apologized for not respecting my reputation after the fact and realizing this client didn't tell me the whole story. So I'm not singling anyone out, but that is the hardest thing, 100%. I had to learn in this field and it takes guts is that you don't control your reputation. It does follow you, but it's never impeccable in terms of you're not there to control every conversation. So I don't know. I've talked to Crystal and Brandy both about that because it's been really hard. That and managing staff, those are the two hardest ones. Um, I've always had excellent staff, but I learned they're not my children. They're not going to be with me forever. They're allowed to go and have their own careers. I want them to have their best life but I think I made almost like a um, too much of my reputation, you know? Like I got really scared about it, that it had to be perfect. Mm. And I can't control that, but over time, I think if you're reputable, it sticks with you more than it doesn't. I agree with that. And I try to give the other counsel always the benefit of the doubt and I'll call them. So I'm not the kind you come in my office, oh, that person's an idiot. They probably screwed up your case. I usually give the other attorney the benefit of the doubt and I hope they give me the same courtesy and I'll give them a phone call. Hey, what's going on here? Because like you said, clients come and go, but we're dealing with the family bar for a long time. And when you're as old as me, people are going. They're retiring. New judges are coming in. 
And um, Brian said, I was like, how do they know my reputation? All my judges are retiring. And they said they talked to the new judges. Is that the same in appellate court? Yes. Um, so crazy. Yeah. Judges talk to each other. And um, if you are consistently straightforward and admit when you make a mistake, um, that weighs very heavily in, in your favor. Oh, I like that. Because one time I called a judge a magistrate by mistake. I felt so embarrassed. But actually kind of helped him. Because that person, I don't want to single out the case, but that person made a mistake later and it was almost like, gave him permission. I fell on my sword. You can be yours, but yeah. Um, but yeah, I appreciate that a lot. But we'll get to our question of the day, which is why are there so many narcissists? I always say it must be something in the water. If you like Greek mythology, that's a joke because Narcissus saw his reflection in the water and he fell in love with it. But um, what's going on with that? We get calls like multiple times a week. I'm married to a narcissist. And what are your thoughts on that? I don't know. I, I mean, I feel like I have noticed a change in the climate when it comes to people nowadays. But I don't, I mean, I feel like definitely social media, you know, has a lot to do with that. Um, and just... A lot of people wanting the attention. Maybe there's just a lot of vanity now, more than oh, we've yeah. seen before. I don't. I don't know. I think there's just a, a mixture of things. I, I think it's also we talk more about mental illness and challenges in our marriages and in our lives yeah, than we used to. My my mom almost never talks about the challenges when she was growing up or the her hard times. But um, as we get younger, there's less taboo there, too. So people are more likely to talk about mental health challenges, uh, struggles. And I agree with Crystal that there is a lot more talk on social media and we hear things. And when we're looking for something, we often see it. So I not to say that there isn't more narcissism. I don't know. But I do see talk about it more. Yeah, we're more transparent. We're more open and willing to talk about things for sure. And um, yeah, I hadn't thought about the social media, but that makes a lot of sense. And just to be clear, and I did work with all severely mentally ill clients in a past life. In New York, I was part of MFY Legal Services, and five attorneys represented all of the formerly homeless, mentally ill people in all five boroughs of New York. So you can well imagine that's a big task. And um, that's why we did impact and class actions and did the best we could do. I really loved that job. But um, there's something called the DSM, and that's how we diagnose the severely mentally ill. And so I'm not talking about us diagnosing people, which we can't. And I can't remember if it's seven or nine traits of narcissistic personality disorder and technically to get government assistance it would have to impair your ability to earn an income which i personally think people with those traits often are very successful not only in their careers but in court because they're very good at lying and they're very believable they are high achievers high income they don't have a qualm about throwing the children in front of the bus to win the case so they're formidable and we represent a lot of people who are divorcing someone with those traits like all the time but yet there are also people that just have the traits i doubt they have the disorder but maybe even they're on the spectrum and they just don't have that emotional resonance or they're just plain old-fashioned selfish 
but they will be ruthless. And, and so we commonly represent victims of domestic violence, people who are accused of domestic violence in cases with people with narcissistic traits. But yeah, you just hear a lot about it and maybe we're just talking about it more. So I wanted to be really clear. It's not necessarily people who are diagnosed. We're not here to diagnose anyone. But yeah, thanks for weighing in on that. So do you have anything final you guys want to end with? We're going to wrap it up. I just hope that everyone who's listened to this podcast realizes that you're really in a partnership with your attorneys and their staff, paralegals, because we do our best work when you do your side. So doing the best you can with the sworn financials and the disclosures, being aware of timeliness. And then when you have questions, we are here to answer them. And it's better to have them early than late. So um, even if you have to have a notebook that you write them down so that next time you talk to your attorneys, you don't forget. Some people do that when they go to the doctor. It's not a bad idea when you're having a meeting with your counsel or paralegals. I love that. And a few good questions can actually save you time. So don't be afraid to pick up the phone. You can even text me. So I love that. And how about you, Crystal? Do you have anything else you wanted to add? Yeah, no, that's that's funny. That's our brand you mentioned. That is, I've even told clients in the past is, you know, if you don't like to write stuff down, even just have an email popped up, you know, and just, you know, type your questions as you go you know something you know pops up in your mind during the week just go in and type it in and then just shoot it to us in just one email and then you know we'll get back to you um as as soon as we can but yeah definitely i mean i can't stress it enough how we we really are here to help you and not hurt you you mentioned that earlier we're here to help not to hurt so reach out to us i mean we care we care about our clients um you know we are people too um our clients are not just another number just another case you know we have families we have you know, mothers and brothers and sisters. And so, and that, that have gone through the process, maybe we've gone through the process and so we can relate. And so, um, reach out to us, you know, don't, don't feel embarrassed. Don't feel ashamed. We've seen it all, heard it all. Um, yeah, for sure. You know, yeah. And, and also we're cheerleaders. Like right. we're not here to reprimand you. We're here to cheer you on because it's really hard to get divorced and do all the paperwork and do it right. And we're here every step of the way and give us the benefit of the doubt. Pick up the phone. If you don't like how we did something, you you may be a little surprised that I had something up my sleeve that you didn't know. Um, give us a chance to go over things. We know what we're doing. And for those who listened all the way to the end, they can know my little secret about my clients that I like all my clients, even the really mean ones. And Crystal knows sometimes they're really mean to me. And I like all of them. I really do. Even the ones you'd be like, how can you stand that person? I like all of them. I think I'm like a teacher and you love all your students, even the ones that go to the principal's office every day and call you names. So don't do that. But I will say some clients are better than others for us and some are a lot easier to represent. But I really do love what I do. I like all of them. And I like the people who work for me even better than them. So they're all, it's, I'm really blessed with all you guys. So like I said, um, families are a lot like trees is something I say all the time because when you're a little kid, you draw a tree, you draw a circle and a stick. It looks like a lollipop. But when you look at a tree, they're asymmetrical. They're complicated. They change form. They drop their leaves. That's what families are like. They're not one size fits all, but they're all families. My family is a blended family. 
my kids have step parents, all this, but we're family and we changed form. We didn't just break up. Hopefully we're breaking upward. Thanks for joining us.